The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Welcome to Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study and our series on the Gospel of Luke. You can find us at seekingtruth.net. Please join us now for Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi friends, me again, Sharon Doran from Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study. You can find us at seekingtruth.net. What we're doing here at Discerning Hearts is just slowly working our way through the gospel of Luke, the gospel of joy, the gospel of the Holy Spirit. And last time we were talking about Mary in these first two chapters, the infancy narratives. And we were talking about Mary having some different titles, like Mary the entire of knots and Mary the new Eve. Uh, Today, I want to look at John chapter 2. I want to start off, even though we're studying Luke, we're going to look at John, because John, in John 2, Jesus at the wedding feast of Cana, Jesus calls Mary, his own mother, woman. Now, that's odd. It hails us right back to Genesis chapter 2, when Eve called woman. She had no name. Remember, we talked about that last time. She had no name until after the fall when Adam has dominion over her, rule over her, and gets to name her. Before that, they're total equals, and she is woman, he is man. She is woman taken from man and the climax of all creation, God's greatest gift to Adam. So why is Jesus calling her woman in John 2 at the wedding of Cana? Well, He's hailing us right back to Genesis. If you read John's gospel, you'll see that he's a day counter. And he does that for a theological reason. And we're told that the Feast of Canaan is on the third, the wedding at Cana is on the third day after the first four days of John's gospel. He's taken us through day one, day two, day three, day four, and now he says on the third day after four days. So if we're day counting, we see this is day seven. <laughs> now day seven is a big day. Seven is, is, is the day God rested when he finished creating. This is hailing us right back to Genesis, right back to creation. And this is a new creation. And this is a new man and a new woman. And the new man the new Adam is Jesus Christ, and the new woman, the new woman is the new Eve, Mary. And when the wine failed, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And he looked at her, and she looked at him. And I just imagine, in my prayer, I just imagine their eyes locking for seconds that seemed an eternity the wine is empty. And he says, oh woman, what have you to do with me? What is this to do with me? Jesus calls her woman. What is this to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Well, Mary is locking eyes with him. She knows there needs to be a new creation, a new covenant, a new bride. She's looking at him. He's looking at her. Jesus is our firstborn brother. 
He's a new Adam. He's a new spiritual sibling. We know that because when he rose from the dead, he told Mary Magdalene, I'm ascending back to my father and your father. Well, if we both have the same fathers, he's our sibling. He's our brother. (laughs) And Mary is going to be our spiritual mother. So there's no wine. And, 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 and their eyes are locking, and Mary tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. Well, in this story, a new bride, a new groom, a new covenant, a new eternal wedding feast, and one where the wine is overflowing in such abundance, it will never, ever fail again because the wine is Eucharistic wine. And John just hides that so spiritually and so theologically beautiful. It's such a mystery. But back to St. Luke, he's the only one to tell us, remember, about Mary's earthly story. He's the only one to paint her. And so the first one, I should say, now you know how many millions of paintings there are of Mary, but Luke was the first one to paint her. So he saw her face and he painted her. So let's go to Luke chapter 1 now. And let's see what the very first verse is. Insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, just as they were delivered to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me, Luke, seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the truth concerning the things of which you have been informed. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Luke, for recording this as a careful historian. You want the story straight. You're going to add the details we need to finish out what some of the other synoptics or John did not. And you're going to address it to most excellent Theophilus. Now, who is that? Who is most excellent? Well, Luke again in Acts 24, he'll use the title most excellent when he tells us that Paul goes before most excellent Felix at Caesarea for trial. Felix gets succeeded by Porcius Festus. And again, Luke tells us in Acts 26 that Paul speaks to most excellent Festus. Okay, that's the title some type of governatorial title, most excellent. Uh, We have to remember that the Bible at the time of Christ was written in Koine Greek, and in the third century, Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, if we look up Theophilus, in Greek it means friend of God, beloved one of God, or one who is loving God. He'll also use this title, Theophilus, as he introduces Acts. So if you are, my friends listening, if you are a most excellent Theophilus, which I think you are if you're listening, then you are a most excellent friend of God or a most excellent beloved one of God. And thank you for tuning in today to Discerning Hearts to listen to this story of Luke. It says that in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, ah, I'm stopping right there. There's a lot packed into that tiny little sentence in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Well, first of all, the minute you mention Herod, and this, my friends, is Herod the Great, the people would shudder. Herod the Great was very ambitious. He was cruel. He was paranoid. I could do a whole lecture on him. 
but it's very significant um, to a person to understand this period of Roman domination over the Jewish people. Herod was an Edomite. What do you know about Edomites from the book of Genesis? The very, where does this nation be born? Well, it was in the womb of Rebekah. Rebecca had two twin sons. She's the wife of Isaac. She has two twin sons. They, they've been infertile quite a while. She finally gets pregnant. She has twins in her, in her womb. And they are Esau and Jacob. Which one was born first? Do you remember? It looked as though uh, the foot came through of Jacob. It looked as though he would be born first. But he wasn't. Esau got out first. And, and, and it was important which son is born first, which son opened the womb. Very important first because in the Old Testament, the firstborn son had the father's right hand blessing and the birthright. And so Esau got out first. And later in life, Esau will sell that birthright, that precious, precious birthright for a bowl of red lentil stew that Jacob and Rebekah know he'll fall for it. He's been out hunting. Also, Jacob is going to steal Isaac's blessing away from Esau by deceiving his blind father, putting the hair of the fur on his arms, and going in and claiming the father's right-hand blessing. Now, we know how that went over. Not well, because Rebekah is begging Jacob to run, 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 because your brother wants to kill you. And his brother Esau will want to kill him. And there will be great animosity between the Edomites and the Israelites all through the Bible, Esau settles the kingdom of Edom. Esau becomes, starts the kingdom of the Edomites. And Herod is an Edomite. And he is the one, Herod the Great, who will order the slaying of the holy innocents, the first martyrs of the church, those baby boys, three years and under, that will be slayed at the hand of Herod's army under his rule. Now, Herod also brings very heavy taxation on the people. He's relentless with his building projects, cities, palaces, fortresses. Uh, they're still standing today. Beautiful, beautiful work. But that caused heavy taxation to the people. They're being taxed to death. Also, Herod is not in the royal line of King David. Israel is under Roman occupation and the king of Israel is not in the royal line of David. He's an Edomite. He's a puppet king. He's in cahoots with the Rome. And the people are being taxed to death, and they're just crying out for a Messiah. When will Messiah come? When will the promised one, the anointed one, come? Because they knew way back in Genesis 3.15 that the very first gospel, the Proto-Evangelium, said the serpent, Jesus, God the Father, said to the serpent, he's going to put enmity between you, Mr. Serpent, and between the woman. Between your seed, serpent, and between the woman, the woman's seed. He, the virgin woman's offspring, is going to bruise your head, serpent, and you, serpent, are going to bruise the virgin woman's offspring's heel. Mm. Therefore, also, in Isaiah 7, they know a Messiah is coming because it said the Lord himself is going to give you a sign. Behold, a young virgin is going to conceive and bear a son, and you'll name him Emmanuel, which means God saves. So they're waiting for Messiah. They're waiting for Messiah. They're praying for Messiah. Malachi, one of the prophets of the Old Testament, said, Behold, I send my messenger 
to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, the very famous last words of the Old Testament, Malachi was the last prophet who spoke. And then there's going to be four hundred, over 400 years of dead silence, not a word from God. And the last thing Malachi records is this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day the Lord comes. And he, Elijah, is going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Elijah must return before Messiah come. Now to this day, my friends, the Jews on the night of the Seder Passover will put a place setting in a cup for Elijah and the little children will play a game and they're going to the door and looking to see if Elijah's coming tonight because they're still waiting for Messiah. But Jesus Christ in Matthew eleven eleven said this, truly I say to you among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven, is greater than he. That's a little riddle. He's speaking of himself. I think he's self-identifying that he's Messiah and greater than John. But he goes on to say, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and men of violence take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus Christ himself calls John the Baptist the Elijah who is to come, the one that Malachi predicted in his very last sentence in the Old Testament. If you are willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. Ooh, the plot thickens now because we know in this chapter that Zechariah and Elizabeth are going to have a baby named John, and he will be that new Elijah. He will be the forerunner to the Messiah of God. Mm. Herod Antipas will silence John the Baptist. Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great, and he will silence the greatest prophet of all time. He will slice his head off. He will order that after Salami does the seductive dance at his dinner party when he offers half his kingdom, whatever she wants. And she looks at her mother and she says, I'll take the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And she gets it. So the new Elijah is martyred. He's cut. His voice is cut. The voice that heralded this is the Messiah. This is, he always points to Jesus Christ. This is the one, repent, repent, repent. One's coming who's greater than I. I must decrease so he must increase. And boom, was he ever decreased that night when he was beheaded. We'll return to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran in just a moment. Hello, friends. Please take a look at SeekingTruth.net and find out how you can join as an individual online learner. Sharon's lectures are presented in a rich media format with audio, video, and an abundance of beautiful images which draw you into a deeper understanding of God's Word. In addition, Part of the Seeking Truth mission is to build parish life through the communal study of God's Word. To encourage parishes to begin a Bible study, Seeking Truth offers its curriculum free of charge for parishes hosting a class. Please visit us at SeekingTruth.net where you can register to bring Seeking Truth to your own local parish. And now, back to Seeking Truth with Sharon Dorn.
the Memorari. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly to thee, O Virgin of Virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. We now return to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Luke says that there was a priest named Zechariah. He was of the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Zechariah and Elizabeth. She's from the house of Aaron. That's the priestly tribe. If you remember, Aaron was the brother of Moses, and that's the tribe of the Levites. Both were righteous in the eyes of God. They observed all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blamelessly. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Let's open that up a little bit. Uh, It says that Zechariah is a priest, and we know it says that he, uh, his division's turn was to come. Verse 8 says this, once when he was serving as a priest in his division's turn before God. Okay, friends, let me tell you, there are 24 priestly divisions. You can read about that in 1 Chronicles 24, where it says that um, the eighth division was Abijah. What, what would happen is that the priests themselves lived not only in Jerusalem, but there were also other settlements throughout the land of Israel. And when it was time for the division to go up, there were these 24 divisions, they would go up to Jerusalem. The priests would leave their homes and they'd go up to Jerusalem for about a week. And afterwards they would return back to their homes. So Zechariah's lot has been drawn. He is, his, it's his turn to serve. The house of Abijah, they have to go up and do their weekly duty at the temple. Now it says in Luke 1, 9, that according to the practice of the priestly service, he, Zechariah, was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord to burn incense. Oh my goodness. We don't realize what a great honor this was. This might be a once in a lifetime chance to get to be that this was a priestly thing to cast lots to see this is decided by the Lord. And and it's Zachariah who's been chosen to go inside the temple sanctuary to burn the incense. Now this, my friends, is the most honorable service in the daily ministry of the burning of the incense on the golden altar within the holy place of the Lord. 
and Zacharias Priestley lot has been drawn. And so he has to travel to Jerusalem. He's going to go inside the temple. He's going to go inside the holy of holies. And he's going to burn incense before what? He's going to go behind the four inch thick curtain tapestry. And he's going to go into the holy, holy, the most holiest place on the face of the earth because the Ark of the Covenant is in the Holy of Holies. And what is the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant is the true presence of God. And what was in that Ark of the Covenant? We know in Hebrews 9 that there was a golden pot that had the manna from the desert at the time of Moses. There was Aaron's rod that had budded and showing that he had the authority of the high priesthood. And, and there were the tables of the covenant. That's the old in the Old Testament, that is the Ten Commandments, the tables, the tables, the the stones where the finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments. And then there were cherubims of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. It was covered by the mercy seat of God. So that Ark of the Covenant was so important and it sat in the Holy of Holies. But there's one problem, my friends, and you must remember this. And a lot of people don't know this because they removed Maccabees from the Protestant Bible. But we are, and, and so they remove a huge chunk of history right before the time of Messiah. But if you read in 2 Maccabees 2, that Jeremiah hid the ark. Jeremiah hid the ark at the time of the Babylonians because he didn't want it to be stolen and desecrated. And so Jeremiah, it says, came and found a cave and he brought there the tent and the ark and the altar of incense and he sealed up the entrance. And some of those who followed him came up to the mark. They came following him to mark the way, but they couldn't find it. And when Jeremiah learned of it, he rebuked them and he declared the place shall remain unknown until God gathers his people together again and shows his mercy. They got in trouble for trying to find the ark. Friends, I tell you, that ark has never, ever, ever been found. And people have looked and looked and looked and looked for that ark. It was the most important thing the people carried all through the Old Testament because it was the true presence of God. It's missing, and it was missing at the time of Jesus. So when Zechariah goes into the Holy of Holies, there's no ark there, but there's a slab where the ark used to sit, and now that slab, because it touched the ark, is the holiest, holiest, holiest place of the earth, but the true presence of God is not in the temple at the time of Jesus. So Zechariah is being called in there to light the incense. This is the biggest day of his life. There is a whole, Luke tells us in verse 10, that there's a whole multitude of people praying and waiting outside at the hour of incense. We know from Numbers 28 that there were two daily offerings made at the temple at 3 o'clock uh, in the afternoon, that was the evening twilight offering, and at 9 a.m. in the morning. So he's there at the 3 o'clock hour. And when he goes in, what is the priest of Israel supposed to be praying about when he's on the holiest face in the place of the earth before the true presence of God, where the true presence of God used to be? As a good priest, he he doesn't want to be struck dead. The incense will be a screen between him and God. So it, so he's he, anyone who looks at the face of God will be struck dead. This is this is what they knew, and so he's praying for the redemption of Israel. Now, might you suppose that Elizabeth has been barren all these years, and she knows her husband's going into the Holy of Holies to pray? Do you think Elizabeth might have said, "Hey, Zachariah, honey, could you also pray that we could have a baby?" 
you know, I, I just, this just comes to me in prayer when I'm imagining the scene that Elizabeth, knowing that her husband's going into the holiest place on the face of the earth, might ask, can you pray also for a baby, honey? Well, the reason I say that, you'll see. There appeared to Zechariah an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. The priestly prayer for the resumption of Israel, or the husband prayer, or, or, I propose to you, friends, could they be the same prayer? He's praying as a priest for the redemption of Israel. Maybe he's also praying for a son to be born. Could it be the same prayer? Could his son start the way for the redemption of Israel? Because the angel's next words are, Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And he said your prayer has been answered, so maybe he did pray for a son. And his name's going to be called John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he shall drink no wine or strong drink. (laughs) Zechariah must have been blown away. Is his wife having the Messiah? She's not a virgin. Elizabeth is not a virgin. (laughs) Can't be her. He knows the scriptures. A virgin woman. Hmm. He must have thought... He's to have no wine or strong drink. He must have thought about the supernatural birth of Samson. Samson had to take the Nazarite vow, and his mother was infertile, but not a virgin. Maybe my son's going to be somebody like Samson. <laughs> he was filled with the Holy Spirit. That here's what here's what the angel goes on to say: that his son is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. What? Even from his mother's womb. Now, in the Old Testament, people weren't filled with an indwelling Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came on the prophets and they spoke, but never did the Holy Spirit indwell someone. But this kid of Zechariah, this son, is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He's going to be indwelt. And he's going to turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Oh my goodness. Zechariah, knowing the scriptures, knowing the last words of the Old Testament from Malachi says that exact thing. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children back to their fathers. This could be the, the new Elijah. This could be the new life. Wait a minute. I've got a question. Zechariah has a question for the angel Gabriel. Zechariah said to the angel, How can this be? How shall I know? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Ah! And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Oh, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things come to pass, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And so Zechariah is muted on the spot for the question he asked, because the angel said it showed his unbelief, because you did not believe my words. Now, this muting of Zechariah is going to be a very, very powerful sign for the people who are waiting outside the temple, because we're told by Luke that there were people waiting for Zechariah, and they wondered at his delay. He's been in there a long time. They wondered at his delay in the temple. 
And when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple and he made signs to them and he remained dumb. He's been muted. He can't speak. He can't tell. They know something's happened, but he can't say. He won't. He's he's probably flailing with his hands and his body, his his mouth, his his voice doesn't work. He can't tell of this miraculous thing he has seen. <sighs> Verse 23. And when his time of service was ended, he went back to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she hid herself, saying, Thus the Lord has done to me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. Back then, if you weren't blessed with children, uh, it was it, it was a reproach. And, and the Lord's going to take the reproach away. Let's talk a minute about the angel Gabriel. I am Gabriel. When was the last time? In the Old Testament, when we heard anything about the angel Gabriel. <laughs> well, friends, if you recall, it's in the book of Daniel, chapter 8 and 9. Daniel was a Jewish man living during the Babylonian exile of the Jews in about 586 BC. We know that happened. Babylon had taken over the kingdom of Judah, and many Jews got exiled to Babylon. Among them was Daniel. And there was a prophecy from Jeremiah that said that Israel would be in exile for 70 years. And Daniel was considering that prophecy from Jeremiah, and he realized, guess what? That 70 years is almost up. What Jeremiah told us, 70 years, the, the clock's been ticking, and 70 years is almost up. And while he is in prayer at the 3 o'clock hour in the temple, Gabriel, that same angel, he says, the man I had seen in the earlier vision came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. Same time as Zechariah, the twilight, the evening sacrifice. And the angel said, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you begin to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, Daniel. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Ah, what he's telling Daniel is seventy sevens. It's not going to be 70 years because the people haven't repented. We hear about this back in Leviticus 26, 18. If you do not obey me, I'm going to punish you seven times more for your sins. He had already punished them 70 years in exile, but seven times more than 70 will be needed. 490 years of waiting for Messiah. We'll pick up there next time, friends. Join me again. I'm Sharon Doran from SeekingTruth.net, and we're going through the Gospel of Luke. God bless you. Thank you for joining us for Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study. For more information, please go to SeekingTruth.net.